We are in the road to redemption, John chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 27 today. And as we conclude our service this morning, we are going to be celebrating our Lord's death with a time of communion. And the scripture says that we should be ready for that and to examine our lives so that uh, we are set apart to God. Uh, John chapter 18, verses 1 through 27. This is the arrest. And as we move up to Easter, this is page 70, 752 if you're using the uh, Bridge Bible. On the night before uh, Jesus' death, he spent the entire evening with his disciples, a very focused time uh, the night before his death. He ate his last supper with them in the upper room. You remember this, this takes place in Jerusalem. That night, he washed the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. Judas Iscariot, the treasurer of the group, um, left the upper room to, to betray Jesus into the hands of the Jewish leaders. That night, Jesus taught his disciples um, that uh, the whole section, John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, take place in the upper room. He talked about his death, uh, Judas's betrayal, Peter's denial that's coming. He talked about the Holy Spirit whom he would send after he left this world. The Holy Spirit who had been with them in their ministry would soon be in them. And that's going to be a totally new experience for them. That's going to change everything in their lives. He taught them how the Holy Spirit would be guiding them into the truth and recalling his teachings to them and about how the Holy Spirit would convict this, the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And as we saw last week, J Jesus entered into this very uh, dark night of the soul with a significant time of prayer, significant time of prayer. We saw that in John 17. John, uh, John is the only one who records that prayer. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not record the prayer of John 17. Uh, after praying in the upper room for his followers, for their humility, for their unity, and for their love for each other, Jesus left the upper room and headed for the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, what did he do there? He spent a significant time in prayer. John doesn't record that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do where he prayed and his disciples slept. And he asked God to remove this cup that was coming, but not his will, but the Father's will be done. Um, so we come to the betrayal. If you follow on your outline, we come to the betrayal in ver chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. We start with verse 1, and it's the context. Uh, when he had finished praying... When he had finished praying in the upper room, that, that would have been uh, some location in Jerusalem, uh, Jesus left with the disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. And on the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Um, the garden's name was Gethsemane. We know that from the other writers. And it's a location of olive trees and probably an olive press where... Olive oil uh, would have been made at one time. Jesus went to this place to camp overnight. That was his custom. 
Jesus would come to Jerusalem all three years of his public ministry. He came to Jerusalem for festivals, for a significant time uh, to worship, uh, according to the Old Testament. And when Jesus would come, they, they would, because Jerusalem would be uh, crowded, busting at the seams, thousands and thousands of extra people into the city during this great time of like the Feast of the Passover, and that's what's happening right now. So the city is so full. All, this, all the inns are full. There's no more place for people to stay. Thousands of people are camped out in Jerusalem in tents. Jesus' uh, mode of operandi was to go to the Mount of Olives where he would camp out. Luke 21, 37 uh, records this. Each day, this was his custom. Each day, Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening, he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. Uh, if, you, if you wanted to find Jesus when he was in Jerusalem at night, everybody kind of knew where he hung out. Certainly, Judas knows. The betrayer is introduced in verses 2 and 3. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. This is kind of an ironic scene. It's kind of a silly scene. It's kind of an amazing scene. It's a tragic scene. Judas, who betrayed him. It's very dark, and... Uh, Jesus is exhausted. The disciples are exhausted. They've been sleeping the last hour or so. And uh, so Judas came. His job was to identify Jesus and to lead um, the Jewish leaders to the place where they could find Jesus, make sure it's him. And they come with a detachment of soldiers. And we know from uh, the original language that this word for detachment means they're Roman it's a pretty large group. Could be up to 600 Roman soldiers in this group. We don't know exactly, but that was very common. And some officials, those would be uh, probably Jewish religious officials and chief priests and the Pharisees. So we got the religious leaders and the, and the uh, Roman military there. Now, this is unusual because they don't cooperate very often, like never. And here they are. In the dark of night, and notice uh, they, they came carrying torches, so it's dark. They're, gonna, they're bringing torches and lanterns so they can identify Jesus, who is the light of the world. What do you know? So there we have Judas. Um, We, we uh, are reminded a little bit about, here's, here's kind of the problem here. Of um, We have the Jewish leaders cooperating with the Roman leaders. Why do they do that? What's this all about? Why did they get a Roman detachment to come with them? One is there's thousands and thousands of people in Jerusalem that are extra, and Jesus is very popular. Why do they come at night? Well, they couldn't pull this off in the daytime with people around. Jesus was way too popular. And so... Um, there's another problem here. The Jewish leaders believe that Jesus is a heretic. He claims to be the Messiah. That's blasphemy in their eyes. But you can't put anybody to death for blasphemy under Roman law. 
Only the Romans can allow somebody to be put to death or executed. The Jews can't execute anybody, even though their law said they could, they could execute somebody for blasphemy, somebody saying they were God when they're not. So they have to cooperate. This is a political issue now. They have to cooperate with the Romans to pull this off. Um, John records earlier in the gospel a little bit about Judas and what he's like. Remember uh, John chapter 12, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, this is, this is not the same night, uh, it's like the same week. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. This is after Mary uh, anointed Jesus' feet with expensive perfume. It was like, don't waste it on his feet. That was a problem. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. So, you know, kind of a significant gift, a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. The nature of uh, Judas is kind of, this is the, one of the passages that reveals the most about Judas's character other than he just up and betrays Jesus. But this tells us a little bit about what's going on in his heart. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He stole. That's the keeper of the money bag, the treasurer. He used to help himself to what was put in it. So uh, this is what Judas is like. He's a thief. He's, he has, he does not have, he's not a man of integrity. He's a deceiver. He covers up. Um, he, he wants to look better than he really is. Matthew 26, verses 14 through 16, tells us more about uh, Judas. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went into the chief priests and asked, this is like same day of the, the arrest, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity, he's an opportunist, to hand him over just for 30 pieces of silver. Kind of the same price that you could buy a slave for in the open market. The encounter happens in verses 4 through 11. First we see Jesus' courage under fire. Verse 4. Jesus knowing, look at verse 4. Jesus knowing that all was going to happen to him, went out and asked him, who is it you want? Jesus had this sense of timing. He had this sense of the hour has come. Earlier, if you read through the Gospel of John over and over, my time has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. And then we get to John 13, Jesus knowing that the hour had come. And Jesus, right now, he knows what's coming. He knows he's going to be arrested. He knows what's coming that night. It's going to be a long night. He knows what's coming tomorrow. And he went out and he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus becomes the initiator here. In an amazing way, he's going to be arrested, but who's in charge? He is. He does not sit back passively. He is not surprised. He begins to direct the situation. He will be arrested, but it will be on his terms. Verses 5 and 6, majesty. The question is, who is it you want? Who asks? Jesus. He speaks first. He's not going to wait to see what happens. He's, he comes out. He steps out in front. Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he. He comes right out. He's going to step out. Here I am. Take me. 
Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. Now the other uh, gospel writers record that Judas went up to kiss him. John doesn't record that. John's not worried about that. Some of the Matthew, Mark, and Luke have been written 20 years earlier. He's not worried about what everybody already knows. He's adding things that haven't been recorded yet. And so um, his, his pers- he's not trying to include every detail. We want to know every detail that happened. And that's not John's purpose because he knows it's already been recorded. God's word has already been written. And so he's bringing a different focus here. And so next we see something that's not recorded in any of the other Gospels. Verse 6, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Did you see that? A detachment of Roman soldiers with the chief priests who are standing there with lanterns and torches and, and weapons. Jesus said, I am he. And they drew back and they fell to the ground. What happened? Here's what happened, I think. Jesus, who is the Son of God, who is God, spoke words of identification. He said, I am He. This is the name that God used for Himself in the Old Testament. I am. He used it many times in the New Testament to reveal who He was. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. And he said, I am he who's speaking. God is speaking. It is God's word. It is the power of God's word. Just let me remind you, Genesis 1.1, God created, and how did he do it? He spoke, and it happened. He spoke creation into existence. He said, let it be, and it happened. When the world is judged, when Jesus returns, he will speak judgment with his words. That's how powerful he is. Every molecule in the universe today is held together by the word of his power. Jesus just gave a little glimpse of who he is right there. He said, I am he. And all of a sudden, Everybody fell back. They fell to the ground. Kind of a a little foretaste of Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, when one day every knee will bow, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth. Every knee will bow. And it's like there's going to be no choice there. The the power of his presence, people are going to, Bow down. And for you, I hope it's going to be a joyful experience. So Jesus speaks. And it's just a little. He didn't want to destroy them. He just identified himself. It was God's word. And he spoke with power. They were looking for Jesus of Nazareth. That's the only time it's used in the Bible. It's right here in John. It's mentioned twice. And Nazareth was the town that Jesus grew up in. So they weren't saying, we're looking for Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the one who says he's the son of God or Jesus the son of man. They're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. So, you know, let's make a movie. That's what they did. It's a pretty good movie. It's a little dated. But 
So here's what we see. Jesus is protecting his disciples. The whole time, he, he steps out. He initiates. All the focus is on him. The, 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 the focus is not on the disciples. If that thing gets out of control, there could be a massacre right here. Just a handful of disciples against the military who have come because of insurrection. Because Jesus said he's the, he's the, the Christ. Um, that makes a claim that he is king of the Jews. That's a political issue. The Romans have to pay attention when, they, when, when uh, somebody says Jesus claims he's a king. And that's why the Romans are there. So they're looking, if it takes military force, they're looking to take over and do this. So Jesus is protecting. Verse 7 through 9, a prophecy. Again, he asked him, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I'm he. If you're looking for me, then let, let these men go. And Jesus keeps his purpose clear. You're looking for me? I'm here. Let these other guys go. Why? Verse 9. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled and have not, that he had not lost anyone that the Father had given him. It was the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus, the great shepherd, didn't lose any of the sheep. And Judas wasn't one of the sheep. He wasn't the real deal. He was an attachment um, foolishness, verse 10, then Simon Peter, who had a sword, a little dagger, a short sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. Several things right here. This is silly. You know, there are hundreds of Roman soldiers present. And, and you know, Peter spoke up earlier. I'm going to die for you, Lord. And he just about did right there. And, and he cut off the ear. What was he doing? I mean, think about this. What kind of swing did Peter have? How do you cut off somebody's ear? If he did it like this, you would think the guy would probably have a deep gash in his shoulder, you know, serious. Or if he did it like this, how did he do it? Did he come to the side like this and just take off a little slice? What happened here? I don't know. But it was stupid. And notice the... uh, the detail here. This is amazing. John has so much detail. An eyewitness. This is amazing in ancient liter- literature. I mean, you just understand. This guy was there. This guy's not dreaming this up. Um, he drew it, and he struck the high priest's servant. Now, we, who's going to know that? The high priest's servant. Cutting off his right ear. Not the left ear or an ear. It was the right ear. And also, we know the servant's name was Malchus. And one of the things we're going to find out here. There's a little bit of a connection going on between John and this whole scene that none of the other disciples will ever have. Um, comes, then comes the admonishment in verse 11. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Shall I not drink the cup, Jesus is saying. I have been be given something that I have to take. Something the Father wants me to do. And it's going to be to suffer and experience the wrath, wrath of God. And I'm going, to, I'm going to die and I'm going to pay the uh, sin penalty of the, of the entire world. That's the cup. He prayed that it might be removed just from a human perspective. And yet then he accepted it uh, on himself. Um, but Jesus admonishes Peter for his rash accent with the sword. As if Peter had been paying attention the entire evening. 
It's like, didn't you hear anything Jesus had said about his death and about what must happen? Um, as if Peter had not been paying attention, as if G- uh, Jesus really doesn't know what he, uh, is best, as if Peter was going to save the day and keep Jesus from doing his father's will. You know, this is kind of crazy when you think about what Peter was up to here. Um, but Jesus fixed this problem of Malchus's ear in Luke twenty-two fifty-one. John doesn't record this, but Luke does. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Now, that just shows Jesus' power. He healed Malchus right on the spot. Didn't have to. What if he hadn't healed Malchus? What would have happened? I think there would be quick military action on the part of the Romans. They probably would have killed them all right there, except Jesus, and they would have taken him in his trial. For insurrection. These are rebels. At least that's how the military is going to treat this. And so um, Jesus heals and uh, uh, Malchus, and, and then uh, Mark records what happens next. Mark fourteen fifty. Then everyone deserted him and fled. What a scene. They're protected. Jesus protected them. They didn't get physical harm, but they scatter. I would too. If I were there, I'd have run, scared to death. You can't imagine they, this powerful Roman uh, military and the Jewish leaders finally got to Jesus. What are we going to do? Run for our lives. That's what they did. So Jesus now is alone. Uh, no companions. We come to uh, the denial in verses 12 through 26. And first, the appearance before Annas, verses 12 through 14. Look at verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with the commander, and those two words right there, detachment and commander, make those Romans. Uh, We can understand that. The detachment of soldiers, so these aren't Jewish soldiers. Jewish didn't really have a military, but they had police at the temple. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. So Jesus is officially arrested. They bound him. Uh, and, and I mentioned earlier, this is really, really rare to have the Jewish officials cooperating with the Romans. And they brought him to Annas, who was father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. So John's giving us a lot of details here. And by the way, if you know anything about what happens before the crucifixion, sometimes people say there are six trials. Jesus went through six trials that night and the next day. And they talk about three religious trials and three civil trials. And we're going to talk more about this next week. But it's like a hearing or an interrogation or an interview. And there's like one kind of unofficial official hearing that happens. But the problem is the Jews don't really have a lot of authority to do any of this. But they're doing it. So they bring... um, Jesus to Annas. Why Annas? Who is he? And, uh, well, Annas was a high priest. And he was let go in 15 AD before Jesus really went public with his ministry. Normally, a high priest was a high priest until death. Annas is still alive. And this is probably like 18 years since he was where he stepped down as the high priest. Normally, the high priest was a high priest until death. That was kind of how it was set up in the Old Testament. 
But the Romans didn't like anybody to be into power that much, that long and have that much influence. And so the Romans appointed high priests. So Annas had five sons, and, all, and f- at least five sons became high priests in Israel. This is pretty silly, crazy. It happened. The Romans appointed Annas' sons to be high priests. But the five sons are not the high priest right there. It's Caiaphas who's the high priest, and he's the son-in-law of Annas. So who's Annas? He's like probably the most influential Jewish man in Jerusalem. He was like the godfather counselor. And uh, he doesn't have official influence, but he probably has the most influence. Verse 14 Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. John reminds us of what happened earlier. Caiaphas was also a very crafty politician. And this was probably not fitting for a high priest, but he was. Um, John eleven forty nine through 52. This, so we go back to, this is like the week before, just, maybe just before Palm Sunday, Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. Jesus was getting really popular after Lazarus' death, and then Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, and that's a pretty big deal. This is really close to Jerusalem. And and so uh, the leaders were getting together, and he says, uh, you know nothing at all. Do you not realize it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish? Now, what he doesn't get there is he's, he's making a prophecy about the substitutionary atonement that Jesus would die for the sins of the whole world and his death would pay it all. He's saying, uh, do you not realize it's better for one man to die for the people than the whole nation perish? Because it's a political thing for him. He, he's trying to protect the nation Israel because if, if any time Israel gets out of bounds and the Romans, Romans get nervous with the Jewish people, the Romans might just pull off a little military action and kill a few thousand Jews in Jerusalem just to get everybody's attention to, to remind people who's in charge. It was easy to do. And so uh, that's what Caiaphas is saying here. It's better that one man, and he's thinking it ought to be Jesus, and then we'll keep peace here. And next verse, next slide. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. And we'll just call it the church. That's not in John, but that's what happened. Okay. And the first denial is verses 15 through 18. First denial by Peter. Switch scenes now. Verse 15, Simon Peter and another disciple. Who is that? Simon Peter and another disciple. Who is the other disciple? It's probably the writer of the book who does not like to mention his name. He's the other disciple in different contexts throughout the whole Gospel of John. Simon Peter and another disciple, John, were following Jesus because, of, because this disciple was known to the high priest. There's a f- connection here with John and the high priest 
Annas, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. This is Annas's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, John, who was known to the high priest, came back and spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. John had access. Peter didn't. Remember the disciples scattered? It's dark. Everybody's afraid. But two of the disciples come back and they follow at a distance. This is dangerous. It's very risky. They took Jesus. It would be really easy to grab Peter or John. But John has access. Somehow he knows he has a relationship with the high priest's household. We don't know if it's like friends, if it's relatives, if it's a business connection. Uh, John's family is not poor. John's father has servants. They have a business. Well, it didn't mean they were rich, but they weren't poor either. And John had uh, some kind of connections that he recognized these people. He knew these people, he w- and he was recognized there, and he was allowed access into the courtyard. And here it comes, verse 17. You aren't one of the disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. Remember what Jesus said when they, he said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he and John says, or Peter says, I am not. It was cold. Notice the detail. It was cold. The servants and the officials stood around the fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. John was the eyewitness. This is firsthand. Um, earlier that night, John 13, 37, and 38. Just to remind, John 13, 37, Peter asks, this is in the upper room. Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. There's John's, or, uh, Peter's promise. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Here's what Jesus said, very, very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, tomorrow morning, which is pretty close to sunup, you will disown me three times. Pretty specific. You're going to disown me. Peter says, I'm going to lay down my life for you, Lord. No, Peter, you're going to fail. Verses 19 through 24, the scene changes now from the courtyard to where Jesus is. Questions from Annas, verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus said, I have spoken openly to the world. I, am, I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where Jewish people gathered, where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. I'm an open book. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. Bring some eyewitnesses in. Those people that I've been teaching, that can tell you everything I've taught them. Um, verse 22, when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face, physical abuse. He had no right to do this. Uh, Jesus is, is not a criminal. Uh, the, there's no ch- uh, official charge. There's no, um, no conviction of anything. They slapped his face in this way. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Annas, the smart one, the counselor, the godfather, He doesn't know what to do. He can't find any reason to hold Jesus. And um, 
So it's not clear what he should do, and so he just sends him on to Caiaphas. Second denial by Peter is in verse 25. Scene changes. Verse 25, meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of the disciples too, are you? He denied it saying, I am not. This was a group ask. If you read the other gospels, there are more. uh, Sometimes it can be a little confusing to read about the denials. And who asked Peter? Well, there was a lot of people around that night. And here's a group. It said they ask. um, Several people. And Jesus, Peter says, I'm not. So he denies the second time and then jump right to the third denial, verses 26 and 27. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. This is more detail from John. A relative of Malchus, the one who got his ear cut off. John was there. Didn't I see see you with him in the garden? Because this servant was there. Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, the, the rooster began to crow. Uh, It happened just like Jesus said. Luke records it in this way, a little more detail that John doesn't bring. Luke 22, just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord spoken to him before the rooster crows. Today, you will disown me three times. Can you imagine that? He remembers. I was with Jesus. This has been a traumatic night. It's been a crisis. All hell is broken loose. How did we get to this point? They have Jesus. They have him arrested. The disciples are scattered. He said, I was going to deny him three times. I've just done it. And Peter looks up and catches. For some reason, right at this moment, we know that they're close enough that Peter can see the eyes of Jesus and Jesus can see the eyes of Peter and the rooster crows. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. What a failure. The worst case has just happened for Peter. He'd been arrogant. He spoke harsh, uh, hastily. He had been proud, and he disregarded Jesus' instructions. Now, Jesus, his leader, his friend, is going to die. Peter failed. Now it looks like Jesus is going to fail. Have you ever been like Peter? And failed? Have you ever made promises to Jesus you couldn't keep? Have you ever made commitments that you intended um, to keep and to make a stand for Jesus, then you failed miserably? Maybe you've made a commitment to sexual purity, but have failed miserably. Maybe struggle with an addiction, and you've made promises to God, addictions like food um, or alcohol or pornography other things. Maybe you have an habitual sin in your life and you keep stumbling over it and you keep failing. Maybe it's your speech. You say things that dishonor God or that dishonor other people or that even dishonor yourself. The great thing is about Peter is that Peter was resilient. Peter failed miserably on this night. And I know I would have too if I was in Peter's shoes. But Peter gets back up. That's what made Peter a great man. He wanted a do-over. You know, walking with Jesus or following Jesus is not about being perfect. It's about, it's about walking 
And when we fall down, it's about getting back up. And the great thing is, is that God has made a provision for us when we need to get back up. Um, God's provision, 1 John 1.9. This is to Christians, um, to believers only. If we confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. That's their provision to get back up. That's how we can be resilient. When we fall down, and we do, we need to get back up. We're going to celebrate communion right now. We're going to remember the Lord's death. And to do that, we need to make sure that we've been resilient and that we've gotten back up. And so um, Scripture tells us that we should examine our lives before we share in the bread and the cup. That we need to be clean vessels. And, and, and God has made that possible that by our confession. He promises to cleanse and to purify our lives and to give us a do-over.